0: Hello, Bridgeway. How are we doing? Good. Well, hey, it is great to see you. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. If we have not met, my name is Brian Kiley. I am the singles pastor here, and I'm really glad to be with you today. Pastor Lance is away celebrating his 20th wedding anniversary, so very excited for him. That's just fantastic. Um, yeah, I'm very, very happy to be able to be with you today. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter 9. That's where we're going to be today. It's on page 895 on the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. If you are new or visiting, we are in the middle of a series right now called Being Jesus where what we've done is we've taken the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the books of the Bible that tell us about Jesus' life, and we've combined them into one account. And we've been studying that for a long time now. I'm part 50 today, this weekend. And uh, today we'll be in John chapter 9. You Usually we we pull from different books of the Bible and we put the scripture up on the screen, but today we're going to be exclusively in John. So I'll invite you just to, to follow along on your device or in your Bible. In the book of John, there are, the author of the book of John tells us that that Jesus did all sorts of miracles, too numerous for him to write down all of them, but that while he was on earth, there were seven particular miracles that John chose to highlight, and the purpose in highlighting these miracles is not just because they're, they're an awesome display of God's power but they're also meant to show us something of what God is like or show us something of Jesus' mission on the earth and sort of what he was seeking to accomplish. So the passage we're looking at today is the sixth of those seven signs. And one just incredible thing about the scriptures that I just want to point out as we're, we're, we're diving in today is that they deal head on with some of the most challenging, difficult aspects of life. That as you and I open up the Bible, we're not going to see some sanitized view of reality where everything is all candy canes and puppy dogs, right? We're just not going to see that. Like the Bible is gritty. The Bible gets into difficult issues. I mean, my goodness, if you think your family's messed up, you should see some of the families in the Bible, right? Or or if you think you have a hard time connecting with God or you've got questions about God, why are you doing this? God, why do these things work this way? Just look in the Bible and the people struggled with that sort of thing. All the time. And the Bible is just filled with circumstances that contain suffering and sorrow and just different people trying to wrap their minds around why the world works the way that it does, why God is moving in certain ways, and then what to do about it. And, and this can be of great encouragement to us as we, living on this earth, as we suffer. Because we're going to suffer. Get excited. Like, it's coming. Right? We're going to suffer. And when we suffer, whether it's from disease or disability or loneliness or relational issues or or misfortune of a loved one or even a child, we can come to the scriptures and we can see that, first of all, God is not ignorant of our suffering. And second of all, that God has shed some light on how we might respond in the midst of suffering. And we're going to see that in John chapter 9 and perhaps the most consistent important message that we see throughout the scriptures regarding our response to a wide range of experiences whether there be they be experiences of great happiness or experiences of great suffering one of the most consistent messages in the scriptures regarding those things is the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you and it's this in all seasons and circumstances joy is found In glorifying God. In all seasons and circumstances, joy is found in glorifying God. Wherever life would have us, the the, the opportunity to bring glory to God, the opportunity to magnify Him, to rest in His goodness, to be secure in His love, there's opportunity for joy regardless of of our situation. And what we're going to see today, in in John chapter 9, there are 41 verses. And we're going to cover all of them. But i want to tell you right now, we're going to spend maybe two-thirds, maybe even three-quarters of our time on the first three verses of John chapter 9. Because it raises such important, practical questions. Questions that I believe all of us, whether we're Christians or not, ask throughout the course of our lives. So I want us to see what the Bible has to say about those questions. So with that, let's start in John chapter 9, verse 1. It says this, as he, it's Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, a couple things here. First of all, the disciples don't exactly show an incredible amount of tact here, right? They go, I mean, they are right in front of this guy. And they ask, hey, Jesus, what happened to this guy, that this happened to him? I mean, just imagine two people walking up to you, sort of looking at you, noticing some flaw that you have, and then one saying to the other, my goodness, I wonder what he did to turn out like that. (laughs) or Wow, she must have done really something really awful to have that happen to her, right? It's incredibly insensitive. I can just imagine the blind man saying, hey, guys, I'm right here. I can't see you, but I can hear you. And you're not being very nice, right? It's incredibly insensitive. But to give the disciples a little bit of credit, they might not have had much tact, but let's just be honest, they're asking a question that nearly all of us have asked when we've encountered our own suffering or the sufferings of others. It's the the why, the why question, why God, why me, why now, why them, why at this time, why to this magnitude, why, 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 why is this happening? And the disciples, they don't merely ask the question, and we're going to spend some time talking about this question, because it's important. But the disciples, they don't merely ask the question, right? They provide an answer. This is a multiple choice. Jesus, you tell us. Which is it? A, did his parents sin so that their punishment was that they got a blind baby? Or B, did, did he sin? Was there something that he did wrong that caused him to be blind? Now, it's a little hard to imagine that his blindness was the result of his own sin because it said he was blind from birth. However, I learned this this week, did not know this, that apparently there were rabbis uh, around the time that Jesus lived that actually taught that it was possible to sin in utero, to to sin before you were born. I don't know how that would work. I mean maybe if you had twins and like they were mean to each other somehow, I don't know, maybe or if, like just you know one child like kicked a little too hard, I don't know. It, it, don't... Don 't think too hard about that. It's very, very bizarre. But at any rate, people taught that around the time of Jesus. Jesus didn't, but other people did. But more importantly, more importantly, the disciples' question, the question that they asked, reflects a belief in a commonly held idea. It was an idea that was commonly held during the time of Jesus. it's been commonly held throughout human history, and to a degree, I think it's commonly held today. And the idea is something that, that goes something like this: Well, if you're living a good life, or if things have gone well for you then you must have done something to deserve it. Or, if things are going badly for you, if you are suffering, there must be a reason for it. You must have done something wrong, you must be doing something wrong, there's got to be a reason for your suffering. You must have done, in the past, somehow, in some way, you were a dirtbag and now you're suffering for it. <laughs> right? And that, as common as that thinking is, it's incredibly problematic, and it's just plain false. There are numerous problems with it, and I want to give you five of them quickly, because I talk to people all the time that that's their mentality. Why is this happening to me? What did I do, right? Or am I not praying correctly, or am I not, is there something I'm doing wrong that's causing this to happen to me? Five problems with that sort of thinking, and, and, and here they are. Number one, there's an ego problem right it breeds incredible self righteousness amongst those who are uh, li- who are living a quote unquote good life rather than a spirit of thankfulness there is a spirit of well i must deserve this because i have done good and then look at that guy over there he is suffering so he's clearly worse than me ha <laughs> right it's incredibly egotistic it's incredibly self righteous and it's just not true and it's fascinating there have been numerous psychological studies that have shown that we as humans have a bias to want to think that when people are suffering, it's their fault. that it's, They must have done something and deserve it. They're getting what they deserve. And the reason psychologists have shown why we have that bias is it's a way of assuring ourselves that that could never happen to us, right? Oh, I'm not like that. That would never happen. It's incredibly arrogant, often untrue. Number two, there's a definition problem. A definition problem. How are we to determine what ailments or situations or, or, or instances of suffering are caused by someone sinning and being punished for it? And, and what is seemingly random or what is designed by God for some other purpose that we do not know, right? Is it just major physical situations like blindness or deafness or, or limb deformities or cerebral palsy or spinal spina bifida or, or, or physical ailments of that nature? What about mental illness? Is that not caused by sin? What about chronic pain or things that we cannot see? Right? What about what about more minor ailments or deformities or or, or or situations? Like for example, I have a gigantic head. I'll turn sideways so you can see it. It's huge. And I was teased a lot for it growing up. And that was horrible. And to this day, if I want to get a hat, I have to special order it. And if you see me around town and I'm wearing a hat and it's on backwards, I'm not trying to be cool uh, or in denial about the fact that I'm getting old. It just squeezes my head less that way, right? (laughs) Is that because of my sin or somebody else's, right? Or what about the fact that your nose is a little bit crooked or that you need glasses or that you can't tell a good joke or that no matter what you do... Or that no matter what you do, you just can't get rid of that last little bit of fat in your problem area, right? Or, or what about any number of issues, right? Is it because of your sin? Is that because of your parents' sin? What about, what about uh, issues and difficulties that we overcome that we look back on and say, well, you know, I wouldn't wish that on somebody, but it made me stronger, right? What about that? You know, you, you, you see what I'm getting at here. It becomes very difficult to define. You don't have to think that hard about this before you realize, well. I don't know how we would define that. Number three, there's a sensitivity problem. It's just mean. I don't have a whole lot else to say about that. It's just mean. It's incredibly insensitive to those who are suffering to try to say, well, hey, this is your fault, right? Number four, there's an evidence problem. Plenty of great people, we know this, plenty of great people live very difficult lives, even miserable lives. (laughs) And plenty of miserable people live these lives of seemingly little suffering and then end up dying in their sleep at an old age, right? Virtually no one would suggest that the quality of the life that you lead, however we might define that, is determined by your morality or your faithfulness or anything like that. In the scriptures, in fact, in Hebrews chapter 11, it's an amazing chapter of the Bible, and it talks about all these different heroes of our faith, and it talks about all of the different things they accomplished through faith. And towards the end of the chapter, it's listing off all of these these different heroes of our faith, and it's talking about the amazing things that they did. It's saying that some put foreign armies to flight, and they escaped the edge of the sword, and they closed the mouths of lions. They did these incredible things, and it's easy to read those words and be like, "Heck yeah, they did! Go team Jesus! Woo yeah! All right, I want me some of that." And not ten verse, ten words, not ten verses, ten words later, it's saying some were tortured. Some were mocked and, and flogged; some were sawed in two, some wandered around, despised and destitute and, and, and what that text tells us is this is, is the, the difference between the path that these different people traveled, some of great victory, some of great suffering, was not determined by their faith. it was not determined by their morality. It was determined by the sovereign hand of God who works all things for his purposes, works all things for his glory, and and promises that suffering is only going to be temporary. Right? We can't, we cannot, we cannot, we can't do this to ourselves where we say, well, if I'm suffering, it must be because I did something wrong. That's just not the case. That's just not what the Bible teaches, that God ordains some for victory and some for suffering and it all works together for his glory. Number five, and this is the most important one in my view, There's a theological problem. And I want to be careful to explain this properly. There's a significant theological problem with saying, what is happening to me now, this suffering that is coming to my life, it is punishment for something. I missed my quiet time this morning, and God gave me a flat tire. Right? That's a silly example. That sort of idea. This is happening to me as punishment. God God is causing me to suffer right now because of something that I did. When you say that, Here's what you're actually saying. You're saying that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he did not suffer enough to pay the penalty for my sin. That the punishment he endured on the cross was not enough to pay for my sin. So in order for God to accept me, I must endure further punishment because of what I have done. And I want to tell you that is just not true. Fundamental... To our faith, at the center of our faith, no matter what you hear anywhere else, no matter what anyone else would try to tell you, at the center of our faith is the idea that when Jesus Christ hung on the cross, he paid the penalty for you and for me for all of our sin in all time, period. God does not need to punish you more to be able to accept you because he punished Jesus in your place. I can't stress that enough. Now, does God discipline us for our growth? Absolutely. Does he discipline us so that we might grow in holiness and be conformed to his image? Absolutely. But does he punish us? No. No. I do want to be clear, that's not to say there aren't consequences for our actions. And I think we would be amiss if we uh, experience the consequences of our actions and try to say, well, this is God punishing me. For example, if you drive 75 in a 55 and you get pulled over and you say, oh God, why are you letting this happen? (laughs) I just imagine God's like 75 in a 55. Did you miss the day in math class or the day in driver's ed? Which was it, right? Like, have the longest quiet time you want. You're still going to get a ticket if you do that, right? That's, I didn't do that to you. You did that to you. Or if your four main food groups are double cheeseburgers, fries, Coke, and apple pie, and you wind up on your cardiologist's frequent customer list in your 40s, oh, God, why have you done this to me? He didn't do that to you, Right? Financially, if you live with absolutely no margin and spend beyond your means and rack up consumer debt, and then all of a sudden you hit a financial hiccup and it throws you into a tailspin, right? God didn't do that to you! Right? It's not punishment. If if we choose to walk these paths, we, we ought not be surprised, and we certainly ought not blame God when we arrive at our destination. So now Jesus begins to answer their question, and there are two parts to the answer, and I want to take them one at a time. First of all, he says this, this is verse 3, Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. He, he says, this particular sin is not the res-, or excuse me, this particular suffering is not the result of particular sin. And to understand Jesus' view on this issue, we need to see something that he says in Luke chapter 13. In the first few verses of Luke 13, you don't need to go there, I'll just summarize it for you. Here's what happens. There's a terrible tragedy, and a tower collapses, and 18 people are killed. And the disciples come to Jesus, and in verse 4, they say to him, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? In other words, they're saying, Jesus, come on. Those people died because they're rotten people, right? There it is, a psychological bias. They're getting what they deserve. And the implication of that is, but we're good people, we are your disciples after all, so that would never happen to us, right? And Jesus comes at them and just shuts them down completely. He says, that's not true at all. He says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Whoa, not the answer they were expecting. So how does Jesus understand the relationship between sin sin? And suffering we we need to get this because it can save you a lot of heartache as you're walking through your own suffering first of all Jesus knew and the Bible and the Bible teaches that when God created the world it was without suffering he created a world without suffering Genesis 3 speaks to this my favorite chapter of the Bible Romans 8 speaks to this idea of sort of the difference that sin is made in the world that when when we sinned when humanity turned away from God the world ceased to work the way that it was designed And part of the physical horror of suffering, as we look out in the world and see suffering, and are just, oh gosh, this is awful, that is meant to show us the moral horror of sin. So in a sense, we as sinful people, we're getting the world that we deserve. Right? We have sinned and we are getting a world that shows the results of sin. So there is a sense then, that sin in general is the cause of suffering in general. So what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 13 verse 5 is he's saying, listen, fellas, I got bad news for you. You sort of all deserve to have towers fall on you, right? You're all sinners. You've all kind of messed this up. So in essence, if we were to answer the question, who sinned Jesus that this man was born blind, or if we were to ask the question, well, why did this happen? Who sinned that now I'm being? This is happening to me. The the only answer is we're going to say. To anybody is with you all of us all of us we've all sinned so we have a world that is devastated by sin but even though jesus agrees that sin in general causes suffering in general he denies that individual sin is punished by individual suffering and this can help us out because when we're suffering you don't have to ask the question why me as if there's some sort of satisfying answer Because the answer to the why me question is because we've all sinned. And this is a broken world that's devastated by sin and by suffering. So our lives, we're going to experience suffering. And it can also save us from the question of, oh gosh, what did I do to deserve this? Or I must be so awful because this is happening to me. The truth is, you live in a sinful world amongst sinful people and you yourself are a sinful person. God is not mad at you. God is not punishing you. That's our world. Back in John chapter 9, Jesus goes on. He says, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. The works of God might be displayed in him. Now, when you and I ask the why question, why did this occur? There are really two questions in there, and we could be asking one or the other. We might be asking a question about cause. What caused this to happen? For example, I might be at home, and I might look down and see my 18-month-old on the floor. Screaming his head off Flopping around like a breakdancing starfish Just really going crazy And I might ask the question Why did this happen? What caused this to happen? And I might remember Oh, (laughs) that's right Four seconds ago I prevented him from crawling in the dishwasher And now he's mad I don't know if I'm the only one who's had that experience But right, that's an issue of cause, right? Or There's an issue of purpose. We can ask a different question. We can ask, for what purpose did this happen? What good is going to come from this? How might God use this situation that has happened, that isn't going to change, for his glory? How might this situation help me grow? And the disciples are fixated on cause. And Jesus wants wants them to get their eyes off of cause and on to purpose. Jesus says, the main reason for this man's blindness is found in its purpose. So a much better question to ask when we're suffering is not what did I or what did someone else do to deserve this, but rather for what purpose did this happen? What good might be accomplished because of it? Because I want to suggest to you that the question what caused this or what did I do to deserve this, we think the answer to that question is going to bring us comfort and I just don't think that's true. It might increase our regret, it might increase our frustration, but it almost certainly will not bring us comfort. Don't worry about past causes, Jesus is saying in this instance. Rather, consider future purposes. And the purpose of this man's suffering is so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And this is so important to us because in that verse and in other verses in Scripture, there's a promise. And it's a promise that you and I need. It's a promise that in the midst of our suffering... If Jesus is our everything, if we're confessing our sin, if we are clinging to him, if he is our great reward, the promise is this, that our pain and our suffering will have a good purpose. The most famous verse that speaks to this is Romans chapter 8, verse 28. You've likely heard this if you've been in church for a long time. If you're not a church person, it's just helpful to know this is a really famous verse that, that Christians look to all the time. It says this, and we know that for those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we often, we read that verse and we stop right there, but I think the first part of verse 29 is just as important. Because it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And the promise is this, that those who he foreknew, those who he has called to himself, in other words, he has predestined, he has promised that he is going to conform us to the image of his son. So the promise is that God will use all things to conform us to the image of his son. Now, anytime I read those verses, I have to put this disclaimer on it. Don't ever, 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 ever half-heartedly quote this verse to somebody who's in pain trying to make them feel better. Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You will come across as trite and uncaring regardless of what your intentions are. However, this is a promise for us to cling to personally when we are walking through the furnace of suffering. And it's not meant to make you feel better. I mean, we are made in the image of a God who hates suffering more than we do. So, of course, we are going to hate suffering as well we should. But rather, it's a promise that saves us from the despair of meaninglessness. And it promises that our suffering will have a good purpose. And that purpose, John 9, 3 tells us, is that the works of God might be displayed. Now, I want to address a red flag that at least raised in my mind as I was reading this text, and it's this. Uh, Some might say, well, this is... This is crazy. You mean to tell me that God willed that this man would be born blind, and he would be blind for who knows how many years, at least a couple of decades, and he would experience all the suffering that goes with that just so that God could get some glory somehow through his life. I mean, that at best on the surface seems incredibly cruel. But, but here's how we can begin to wrap our minds around that. The purpose of the blindness, according to Jesus is to put the work of God on display. And the implication of that for all of us is that if any of these promises are going to mean anything, the promise that God has a good purpose in your pain, the promise that he will use all things to conform us to the image of his Son, for that to have any meaning to us, Jesus has to be our ultimate. He has to be our ultimate. He has to be our great reward. We have to value him more than sight, more than life, more than anything. Psalm 63 verse 3 says your steadfast love is better than life And I think we can initially hear a verse like that and say oh, that just sounds nice This is very flowery It's maybe you can paint it on the wall or you know put it on a coffee cup or whatever So your steadfast love oh god, you know, it just sounds very nice, right? But then when you think about it It almost sounds crazy Like that if this verse is true, that if you and I have the choice between the steadfast love of God on the one hand or drawing our next breath on the other hand, we would be better off choosing the steadfast love of God. Now that's just crazy. Unless you understand how soul-satisfyingly wonderful the love of God is. Because when we do, to choose anything else would seem crazy. And when we begin to see that that's really true, when we see that being known by God and being loved by God and the promise of eternity with God and the opportunity to see God work, when we see that all of those things are of greater value than sight or a greater value than hearing, greater value than life, we can begin to be strengthened by the promises of God's good purposes as we endure suffering. And I think it's interesting, by the way, as we're tempted, at least I'm tempted, to look at this man and say, well, this isn't really fair, the way that God is treating him, right? It's interesting to see his response, because what we're going to see in a moment is, is, uh, spoiler alert, he's going to get healed. It's going to be awesome. He's going to regain his sight. And it's fascinating to see what his response is. He stood right there and listened to Jesus say, this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. And when he gets healed, he doesn't like come to Jesus saying, hey... What was up with all those years of blindness? That was a real bummer. Just so you could like do some thing and get some glory out of it? What the heck? No. It says he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Having seen the works of God, having seen the power of God in his life, he realizes yes, the power of God. Being able to experience that in this moment is so much better. Even all these years of blindness, it's all worth it by comparison. See, we think the suffering of this man is cruel because we think that sight is more altogether satisfying than the glory of God. And having seen the glory of God, this man knows that it's greater than his suffering. And the point of all of this, I want to be clear, the point of all of this is not to minimize our suffering. I mean, suffering is is devastating and can be devastating. We have wounds that we'll carry for the rest of our lives. I'm not minimizing that for a moment but it's to help us see the profound greatness of knowing God. The the Apostle Paul, a man who was familiar with tremendous suffering, wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He says, he, he calls this light and momentary affliction, that's what he calls suffering, is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And then in Romans 8, he writes, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us. And he's not saying suffering is not a big deal. It is a big deal. But he's saying the glory of God, the love of God is so immense that a day is coming when we will look back upon even the worst of suffering of this world and say that was light and momentary by comparison. And we have to see also that God was well aware of this man's suffering. It's not like he just happened upon it and said, well, I guess I'll let me do something to fix it. He was well aware of it. The scriptures teach in Psalm 139, it says, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. See, God is never caught off guard by suffering. He's never caught off guard by your suffering. He is well aware of it. And there's nothing that has happened under heaven that has not passed through his hand. There there is no circumstance under heaven that God looks at and says, oh, wow, boy, I did not see that coming. Man, what is that? That's a real shocker. What am I going to do now? Everything is ruined. You might say that. I might say that. But God doesn't say that. Hebrews 1, 3 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, God doesn't react. He knows, he sees, he acts, he works, he redeems. But he doesn't react. He's not caught off guard. And so Jesus, who knows better than any of us the beauty of the glory of God, who knows the all-satisfying greatness of God's glory, who knows that in comparison to the greatness of God, that even this man's great suffering is a light and momentary affliction, he can say without a bit of hesitation, yes, God's works are going to be displayed in this man, and that is the purpose behind his blindness, and it is a good purpose. And in this case, we'll see in a moment, the glory of God is going to be displayed in healing. And we see that in our world today where people get sick or they get injured and they get healed. Most often through some sort of medical treatment and we can praise God for using the power of medicine and doctors to bring about healing. Sometimes he does it through some other sort of miraculous event where God just heals people. Either way, we can praise God for his power to heal, his healing power. However, we also need to see that sometimes God's glory is shown not in his healing power but in his sustaining power that sometimes God's glory is shown by strengthening us so that we might suffer well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we we hear about Paul and he talks about what he calls a thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was something that was causing him tremendous anguish. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, he says he prayed to the Lord three times that it might be removed. And what God said back to him in return was this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. He's saying, I have sustaining power. Glory is going to be found by you walking this road of suffering and suffering well. I heard a story a long time ago about a man who's now in his 90s, who actually just saw recently, who 30 some years ago, his first wife got sick with cancer. And at the time, she was a believer and he was not. And as the story was told to me, her biggest prayer throughout her illness was, God, I want you to be glorified. God, I want you to be glorified. God, whatever happens, I want you to be glorified. Were there prayers for healing? I can only assume that there were. Did her church pray for her healing? I can only assume that it did. But as the story was told to me, her biggest desire in all of it was, God, whatever happens, I want you to be glorified. And that was the desire of her heart up until the day that she died. And seeing Her faith, seeing her unwavering trust in God right up until her last moments, seeing her unwavering trust, that opened the eyes of her husband. That gave her, that helped her husband see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the reality of Jesus Christ, and he began to walk with him and does to this day. See, that's the glory of God in suffering. That's suffering well for the glory of God. In all seasons and circumstances, joy is found in glorifying God. And was there grief? Yeah, yeah, there was grief. There's still grief. Was there suffering? Yes, there was tremendous suffering. But it was suffering well for the glory of God. And it's often in our suffering, as you and I suffer that we're able to to display to the world the all-surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. There is an integrity that the world cannot deny when someone is trusting Christ when they have every reason not to, when they are trusting Christ in the midst of the worst of suffering. Now, does this remove suffering? No, it doesn't. And the last thing I want to do is minimize it but it gives us a promise in our suffering that God loves you, that God is not angry with you, that God is not punishing you and that the promise is that he will in the end work everything out in such a way that it increases your joy and his glory. That's a promise for us to cling to and it is by treasuring Christ as we suffer that we can suffer with real hope. So Jesus wants them to know, and I think he wants us to know. No, 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 no. There's purpose in this suffering, that the works of God might be displayed. Verse 4, and we need to pick up the pace a little bit. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. The day refers to Jesus' earthly ministry when he was carrying on a ministry of preaching and healing. In the night, that will be his time where he carries on a ministry of dying, where he goes to the cross for the ultimate healing of you and I. That's what he refers to by day and night. Verse 5, As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. It's amazing. This guy was blind his entire life. Jesus spits on the ground, makes a little mud, rubs it on his eyes, and he goes and he washes off and he can see. Awesome. Awesome. But it's kind of a weird story, isn't it? go wash off. And he's healed, right? It's a little bizarre. And I just want to make this very clear. I don't care what's going on with my eyes. I don't want any of you doing that to me, all right? No spit mud on my eyes. We're just not doing that. If God wants to heal me, he can do it some other way. (laughs) But why would he do this? Why would Jesus do this? Believe it or not, in the ancient world, spit was believed to have healing or even curative properties. I'm not making this up. In fact, the first century Roman scientist, Pliny the Elder, devoted an entire chapter in his writings to the healing properties of spit. I'm sure it's a great read. <laughs> now, but listen, hey, we can all shake our heads. And know oh, those silly ancient people, they didn't understand the way the world works. Da-da-da-da. What do you do when you burn your finger on the stove? <laughs> right? Come on, we're not that different. But obviously we know that has no healing effect and Jesus knew that it had no healing effect. So we don't really know why he decided to use mud to heal the guy. Chances are it was only because people believed at that time that it had some sort of healing property. So he decided, well, this is what people are used to, so I'm just going to go with it. But he heals this guy and it causes this big ruckus. To summarize the next couple of verses, it's kind of funny. These two guys, they see this guy that can now see... And they start debating amongst themselves. Well, is that the guy that was over there and that was blind? I'm not really sure. He sure looks like him, but I don't know if he's actually the guy. And the guy is standing right there saying, hey, I'm the guy. Like, I'm right here. It's me. And they're like, well, then how did this happen? And he recounts the whole thing. (laughs) Mud, eyes, pool, and now I can see. And then they say, well, where is he? The one who did this to you. Which, I don't know about you, I think that's kind of a funny question to ask a guy who could only see for the last five minutes. <laughs> he doesn't know what he looks, what's he going to say? He's that guy, right? It's like normally if someone's a witness to a crime, they line up all the suspects and say, which one was it? Like, and this would be like, all right, everybody line up and talk, and I'll tell you who it was, right? It's kind of a funny question, but they ask him this, and he, you know, he's like, I don't know, I don't know. So they bring the guy before the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. Verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had been formerly been blind. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. And in Pharisee world, even that was illegal. Making mud or clay on the Sabbath was illegal. It wasn't against God's law, but God said rest on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees were so paranoid about breaking that, that they would create all these extra rules that people had to abide by to make sure they did no actual work. Which I could only imagine was so stressful for an ordinary Jewish person that the Sabbath was not restful at all. But anyway, verse 15. So the Pharisees again asked him how he, would receive, he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. Now, verse 11, which we didn't read, the, man says, the guy says, The man Jesus did this to me. Verse 17 since this man is a prophet. See, he had had his physical sight restored, and now he is having his spiritual sight restored. Verse eighteen. The Jews did not believe that he had been, been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and they asked him, "Is this your son who you say has been born blind? How then does he see? His parents answered. We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. And I have to imagine, this was a pretty whirlwind situation for his parents. On the one hand, they had suffered with their son, watching him be blind his entire life. So there must have been just incredible joy at seeing, having, being able to see him see. And chances are, they had a pretty good idea how it happened. But yet now they're sitting before the religious leaders being grilled with questions, being threatened to be kicked out of the synagogue if they tell them the truth. If they say, well, well, actually it was Jesus, the Christ, he's the one who did this. Because the Jewish leaders had decided if anyone says that, they're getting kicked out. Now, before we say, oh, well, come on, they should have had more courage or this and that. We just we have to understand that being kicked out of the synagogue, it's not like there was another synagogue down the street they could join. I mean, this was the center of their religious and social life. So being kicked out would have been absolutely devastating. Move move on. Verse 24. So the second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, and this is the most famous verse in the whole story. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. There is power in your personal testimony about what what God has done in your life Amen. that you were blind and now you see there's power in that i want to encourage you with that verse 26 they said to him what did he do to you how did he open your eyes and this is just awesome verse 27 he answered them i have told you already and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you want to become his disciples <laughs> Here's this guy who 10 minutes ago was blind and was a beggar, totally uneducated. He's coming in and now he's lecturing the most learned, educated, religious officials of the day. And they are not having it. Verse 28, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses But as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, this is awesome. He's going to start lecturing now. He's going to start teaching classes in session. Here we go. Why? But the, but the, but the Pharisees, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, that was not the response he got. The Pharisees, they're like, okay, we have had enough. You are not going to talk to us. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach us. And they cast him out. They said, get out of here. You are not welcome here. Verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out and having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Verse 39, Jesus said, for judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Jesus says, I've come into the world for judgment. See, other places in John, he says, I've not come to the Son of Man did not come to judge the world or to condemn the world or judge the world, but save the world. So how, what do we make of that? What Jesus is saying is is that he has come with a message of love. He has come with a message of salvation. He has come with a message that all are welcome at God's table, that that all punishment for sin is going to be taken care of on the cross. It's a message for us today. But he says that if you would reject that message, if you would be blind to that truth, that there's judgment. And there's judgment you are reaping upon yourself. And I think it's amazing that verse 11 says, this man Jesus, right? Verse 17, he's a prophet. Verse 38... He worshipped him. He worshipped him. As his physical sight had been restored, so his spiritual sight is restored. And we have to see, we have to see this is hard for us to see from our, our cultural distance, that it would have been an, an incredible thing for a Jewish man to fall down and worship another Jewish man. But it just goes to testify to the amazing way in which Jesus had moved in his life. He'd moved in his life so profoundly that he was moved to worship. And just as God was glorified through his physical sight, he's glorified through the recovery of his spiritual sight. In all seasons and circumstances, there's joy found in glorifying God. And throughout the scriptures, and this is kind of the big idea of the story, Throughout the scriptures, blindness is used metaphorically to describe people's inability to understand spiritual truth. Isaiah 43 verse 8, for example, refers to the people who are blind even though they have eyes. Or Jeremiah 5.21 says foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see. Or Matthew 23, Jesus will refer to the Pharisees as blind guides. And in John chapter 9, this man, this uneducated man who until recently was physically blind and could do nothing more than beg, he was now gaining real sight. He was seeing, as the story progresses, he's seeing more and more clearly. Even though the Pharisees are becoming more and more blind. They're becoming more and more hardened in their rejection of Jesus. See, this isn't just a story about physical sight and physical blindness. It's a story about spiritual sight and spiritual blindness. And to understand spiritual blindness, we first need to understand that there is such a thing as seeing that is not literal sight. Let me give you an example that will hopefully clarify that. So an individual can see the warnings that come on the side of a pack of cigarettes for many years about the health risks of smoking. And they could ignore them for many years. But then maybe they go into the hospital and they visit a friend whose body is being ravaged by the effects of years and years of smoking. And having had that experience, they realize, gosh, I've i got whatever it takes, I've got to quit. I, I need to. They might even describe that experience as seeing. See, they didn't get new information there. They, they knew, they knew that smoking causes, they, they read it a thousand times, they knew. But they saw, right? Their eyes were opened to, to what lay before them and that caused them to change. Or, or more relevant for, for this concept of spiritual sight and spiritual blindness, what was previously abstract became very, very real. That's seeing, but not literal seeing. So what is spiritual blindness and spiritual sight? Jesus says in scripture that he's come to give us life. And if Jesus has to give us life, that means that in some sense we are dead. We might be physically alive and walking around and breathing and doing whatever, but spiritually we're dead. Ephesians 2 speaks of this, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. And, and it is Jesus who gives us spiritual life. And with that spiritual life comes spiritual sight. He said, I have come that the blind might see. That's not just about physical healing, it's about spiritual healing. And he gives us the ability to understand spiritual reality and to recognize him for who he is. And there's a lot that could be said about spiritual sight. But I, I want to help you see two things briefly. That spiritual sight, having spiritual sight helps us see. And we might use this to look into our own hearts and say, am I seeing spiritually? Am I understanding? First of all, spiritual sight helps us to recognize our own sinfulness. See, most you can talk to anybody you want of any religious persuasion or no religious persuasion, and you could ask them, hey, are you perfect in every way and utterly without flaw? (laughs) And even the most arrogant person would say, well, no, I mean, no, I, I know there's like, there, I've got issues, I have problems, I'm not perfect, I maybe could act differently in some situations. We all know sort of vaguely that there's, you know, we're not everything we could be, right? I don't think anybody denies that. But when God opens our eyes spiritually, He helps us to see the depth of our sinfulness. That it's not just that we're not perfect, it's just that deep within us, there is, there is sin just lurking in us. There's selfishness that is lurking in us. There is, I mean, we're just, we're controlled by our, our lusts for, for different things. And even, even the good things we do, if we really look hard at ourselves, even for many of us, even the good things we do, we do for selfish motives. That there's just something in us that's fundamentally broken. That might not be pleasant to come to that realization, but, but when God opens our eyes to our own sinfulness, we see that. But along with that, when our spiritual sight is restored, we're op- our eyes are open to the reality of God's grace, to the profound reality of God's grace, to the, rea- the, to the point where the, the idea that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, we hear that so often that it almost, be oh, well, sure, yeah, of course, yeah, Jesus died on the cross for our sins, yeah, I know that. But when God opens our eyes... When God gives us spiritual sight, we can have a much deeper appreciation and understanding of what it was that happened when Jesus Christ went to the cross. When our eyes are open, we can more fully recognize what he did. How he, who has perfect spiritual sight and a perfect connection to the Father, that he was plunged into complete darkness, completely separated from God, enduring unbelievable physical pain on our behalf for our sin and for our salvation. And we can realize what Jesus went through, and the cost, and the price of grace, and that moves us, that moves our hearts to worship, when we understand the reality of God's grace, that God, I am so broken, I'm a wretched sinner, but you have done so much to forgive me of my sin, and your grace is greater than even my worst sin, that moves us, it moves our hearts to give him glory, it moves our hearts to desire nothing more than to worship him. It helps us to see that in all seasons and circumstances, joy is found in glorifying God. When he is our ultimate, when he is the object of our worship, we will see that that is true. In seasons of great gain and of great happiness and great excitement, joy is found in glorifying God. In seasons of great pain and great suffering, joy is found in glorifying God god he is our hope and he is our joy and may we have the spiritual sight to see that reality let's pray god in heaven thank you for this time together thank you for your word thats that isn't that it is inspired by you and it is profitable for us God, I pray that we might be men and women who have eyes to see. Would you give us eyes to see our own sinfulness, that we might realize how broken we are? But then more than that, God, would you help us to see the magnitude of your grace, how incredibly rich and limitless and overflowing your grace is? God, would you help us to see that there is nothing more satisfying to our souls, nothing that can bring us joy, nothing that can bring eternal satisfaction like knowing you and seeing your glory. And God, I pray that as men and women with our spiritual eyes open, that we might be people who can suffer well for your glory. God, we are going to continue to pray for healing. I think about people whose physical healing I'm praying for regularly right now. We're going to keep praying for healing physically, financially, relationally, emotionally. We're going to pray for healing and we ask God, would you move in power and show your glory through your healing power? But God, as we wait for that, or as we walk through the furnace of suffering, God, would you help us to show your glory through your sustaining power? Would we be able to show a watching world that even in the worst of suffering, that you are good, that you are holy, and that you are enough and you are sufficient? God, we thank you for these truths. Thank you that your love is better than life. May we understand that reality and walk in that reality this week. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. We'll see you next time.